And will you turn with me in your Bibles, first of all, to the Old Testament book of Proverbs, chapter 23. Proverbs, chapter 23, beginning at verse 29, which will set the stage for our reading again of 1 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 1, 2, and the first part of verse 3. We begin with Proverbs 23, 29 to 35. Then hear the word of God. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long over wine. Those who go to taste mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things, and your mind will utter perverse things, and you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea, or like one who lies down on the top of a mast. They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When shall I awake? I will seek another drink. And now to 1 Timothy 3. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, Respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words of counsel and warning that your scripture gives us. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, who heeded in his own life and person these words of counsel, that though he was accounted by his enemies to be a glutton and a wine-bibber, yet they were words without foundation, words without substance. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would teach us from your word now that we might become more like him. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We want our future pastor and all the other elders who serve on the session with him in coming years, we want them to be spiritual men. Men whose lives are dominated and controlled by the express will of that one great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus Christ. We want our under-shepherds to walk by the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ, to be dominated and controlled by him alone. 
Sadly, we all know of men serving in leadership positions, whether in the church or state or family or trades, professions, whatever the jurisdiction. Men whose leadership values and decision-making skills are blunted by factors that fall short of the glory of God in Christ. Their leadership is blunted sometimes by their own felt needs as men. For instance, the need, not uncommonly experienced by good men, the need to please one's own wife and children. And to do this at the expense of other very important aspects of church leadership. Or the need to feel accepted by others. Or the need for physical rest and relaxation. Or the need for occasional self-indulgence in any number of ways. Dear ones, I want to start out this way today because it's very important that the church understand it. Just as the elders look out for us, we the church ought to look with love and charity upon them. We ought to consider the life that they live as elders, the constraints they're under, and we ought to do this Uh, And they are doing it. They are living this life and living under these constraints for the sake of Jesus Christ and his church. And we need to do this with a view to understanding the inward pressures and longings they may sometimes feel. The elder's life tends to be lived not only within the limits of God's holy law, as it certainly should be, but also within the narrow bounds of social convention. After all, as we saw up in verse 2, the overseer must be above reproach. That being the case, a conscientious elder's life can easily deteriorate into a George Bailey kind of life. A life that's not only impeccably responsible, but can become insufferably routine. Not just dependable, but sometimes depressingly so, at least from the elder's perspective. Unless the Lord Jesus Christ dominates and controls that man's life, working powerfully within him to tame, or better, to harness his restless spirit, then maybe we shouldn't be surprised to find him occasionally looking for ways to break loose somehow. To escape the dull, relentless pain of living the vanilla life of an elder when his preference might be for the far more exotic adventure of the rocky road. Your elders, after all, the best of them, are men. Very commonly, men who are worn down by the weight of their pastoral responsibilities look for a way out of their stifling routines. Now, that being the case, 
in his great mercy and wisdom, even before Adam's fall into sin, even before all of that, God foresaw man's need for an escape hatch. A change of pace. And he gave us the Sabbath day. One day in seven to cut loose. One day in seven to rest for the change, to do something a little different. And we ought to. We ought to enjoy it. Ice cream isn't for every day of the week. It's not good for you to be eating ice cream every day of the week. But the Christian Sabbath is different. It's a delight. Webster's Dictionary, in fact, explains the word Sunday, S-U-N-D-A-E, as in ice cream Sunday. He explains the origin of that word as probably an alteration of Sunday, S-U-N-D-A-Y. So this is one that one day in seven set apart for the enjoyment of that which Webster defines as ice cream served with topping as crushed fruit, syrups, nuts, or whipped cream. So you may be asking, what's my point in talking to you about ice cream? And how does it relate to addictions like addiction to wine? My point is that the wholesome enjoyment of something delightful can very easily become a dominating, controlling factor in our lives. Eating ice cream every day, for instance, or being controlled and dominated by a need for wine, or for women, or for whatever. We call those habits that tend to push Christ out of his rightful place as Lord of our lives, we call them addictions. The overseer of the Lord's church understands the addictive power of the good things of God's creation, but he labors hard with the Spirit's help to overcome that power, to master it for the glory of God. The Apostle Paul here in verse 3 includes in his list of qualifications for the overseer that he be not addicted to wine. More literally, he requires that the man not be paroinos. That's the Greek word, paroinos. That is, that he not be always beside, para, his wine, oinos. It means that he doesn't linger there beside his wine. He's able in the strength that God supplies to go about his Christian life and duties both here in the church and out there in the world. He's able to leave his wine behind. Because wine doesn't dominate him, doesn't control him. Christ alone is the Lord of that man's life. 
I'd like to begin our study of this particular addiction to wine with a look at some historical examples of people who got themselves into serious trouble sometimes on account of it. That'll give us some idea of the scope of the problem. Then secondly, we'll look at what God has to say about the proper and improper enjoyment of wine. And then finally, we'll consider the essence of addiction as it relates not only to wine, but to a very long list of other things, including even things not harmful in themselves, things God in the beginning created and declared to be good. When I began my study this past week, I was surprised to discover how many examples the Bible offers of men who ran into deep trouble by overindulgence in wine. They lingered too long beside it. Their judgment, therefore, faltered and failed. They made some incredibly bad, bad decisions. And as you know, this isn't just ancient history we're talking about. High-profile cases of drunken driving, for instance, make national headlines from the days of Ted Kennedy and Chappaquiddick years and years ago, all the way down to the present day. But of course, never let me preach from the headlines. Let's look at the scope of this problem from the examples that the Bible gives us. There we find some very surprising things, really surprising. For instance, we open the Bible and find that Noah, of all people, Noah, in Genesis 9.21, is the very first example the Bible gives us of a man who drank himself drunk. Noah. Back before the flood, this man had been the most righteous man of his generation. And now, after the flood... Noah is the only man of his generation. And so leaving the ark, Noah reintroduces human culture to the world. He plants a vineyard. And the vineyard produces grapes. And Noah discovers that grapes can be crushed into a juice that ferments And Noah tries the fermented juice, and he drinks, and he drinks himself drunk. And being drunk, his judgment failed him. And the consequences of that failure on Noah's part affected his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, didn't it? And consequently affected the whole direction of subsequent human history. Abraham's nephew, Lot. Another righteous man, according to the Apostle Peter. Lot ran into some trouble. Wine affecting his judgment while he was hiding out with his daughters in a cave outside Sodom. And his lapse of judgment over the course of two nights 
of drinking himself drunk in the presence of his daughters, it changed the course of history, and not for the better. I don't want us to become bogged down by multiplying biblical examples of men, both good and wicked, whose lingering long beside wine led them into serious trouble. Each one of these stories, each one of these men, has a helpful story to tell. But time would fail me if I were to try to tell them all. Let me just mention some of the names of men whose judgment and sometimes whose lives were ruined by spending too much time lingering over their wine. Consider first Abigail's first husband, Nabal, the fool, 1 Samuel 25. Consider the Israelite king, that is, of the northern kingdom, Elah, in 1 Kings 16. Or the Syrian king, Ben-Hadad, in 1 Kings 20. The Babylonian king, Belshazzar, Daniel chapter 5. Each one of these men lost either his life or his kingdom or both. And wine played a significant part in their downfall. So it's small wonder that King Lemuel's mother counsels him in Proverbs 31, verses 3 to 5. It's a mother talking to her son, and she says, Do not give your strength to women. There's another all-too-common addiction. Do not give your strength to women or your ways to that which destroys kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink, lest they drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of the afflicted. The Bible gives us example after example. It's not for kings to drink wine. It's not for kings to let their judgment be impaired by lingering long over it. And, of course, the same applied to the priests under the Old Covenant. Their judgment mustn't be impaired in the discharge of their duties. As, for instance, Nadab and Abihu's judgment was impaired. In Leviticus 10, verses 9 to 11, on the heels of Nadab and Abihu's death for carelessness in the holy things of God, on the heels of that, the Lord tells their father, Aaron, do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting so that you may not die. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations. And so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, and between the unclean and the clean, and so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. So the overseer of Christ's church must 
not be a man addicted to wine. <coughs> now, the synod of our own Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America in its previous constitution of 1945 made the prohibition of tobacco, alcoholic beverages, and habit-forming narcotics absolute in the case of church officers. One might not have so much as a sip of it. And as late as my own ordination to the office of teaching elder in 1984, that was one of the ordination vows I took in exchange for the surpassing treasure of gospel ministry. I took that vow. But the Bible isn't quite that strict, is it? Wine may very properly be enjoyed responsibly by those who do enjoy it and know their own limits, as Boaz, for instance, apparently did. After a hard day's work down at the threshing floor of Bethlehem, Boaz ate and drank and made his heart merry, it says. His heart was merry before lying down to sleep it off at the end of a heap of grain. He drank. His heart was merry. But then he didn't try to drive himself home. He fell asleep right where he was, right where he was working. So he was there in just the right place at just the right time. And in Boaz's case, excellent things came of it. Read the wonderful little book of Ruth to find out what came of it. Uriah the Hittite in 2 Samuel 11 was able to do the honorable thing as a soldier even after King David, of all people, after King David set Uriah down to eat and drink and even made him drunk so as to cover David's own misdeeds. And though he was drunk, still Uriah somehow instinctively knew the right thing to do as a soldier. But Boaz and Uriah were both unusual men. They stand out among all the stories in the Bible about drink. They stand out in terms of their self-discipline, even while they're under the influence. Most men are not that way. Most convincing of all, though, in this matter of enjoying God's good gift, it's the plain fact that Jesus at the wedding of Cana turned not wicked wine into wholesome water, but water into wine. In fact, good wine, the people said, who were serving it. Good wine. Find it in the second chapter of John's Gospel. The good things of God are meant for our enjoyment responsibly and for the glory of God who gives them. Wine? Yes, within limits. Paul actually prescribes it to Timothy. Use a little wine, he says, for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Women? Yes, within limits. 
Solomon tells the generation of young men who are coming up behind him, enjoy life with the woman whom you love. All the days of your fleeting life, which he's given you under the sun, for this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. That one woman you love, your wife, is your reward in life. So enjoy her. Enjoy life with her. To which the Apostle Paul adds this very practical guidance to the Corinthians, which was a church prone to extremes in every possible direction. Husbands and wives, he says, ought to enjoy one another. Connubially. Sexually. Let each man have his own wife, Paul says, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Stop depriving one another, he says except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So enjoy the good things in life within the bounds of God's holy law and holy institutions. Enjoy life. Well, this could become a very long sermon. If I were to start listing all the good gifts of God that careless men waste by dissipation, by ignoring the boundaries, by overindulging and lingering too long over them. Sometimes it's wine, sometimes it's women, sometimes it's song. It could be entertainment. It could be food. It could be too much work. Too much rest and relaxation. Too much of anything. If it begins to control and dominate a man's life. If it takes the place that rightfully belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ in a man's heart. And that really is the essence of addiction. It is the essence of addiction that anything in all of God's good creation should speak to us. Addicto. Should speak to us louder and more insistently than the word of our rightful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Addictions are a danger for all of us. But today we're talking about elders, the overseers of Christ's church, and the Holy Spirit who directs these men to be above reproach, the husbands of but one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. He also directs that they be well-balanced men. Men free from addiction to wine or anything else that threatens to cloud their judgment or in any way bring dishonor upon the Lord Jesus Christ in any way to try to unseat him from his rightful throne. Because think about it for a minute. What do we expect from our elders? 
what should we expect from the courts of the church that taken together these elders, these men, constitute? We expect of them good and godly decisions, good counsel. We expect of them good judgment, not just now and then, not just in those rare moments when they're sober and available, all the time. Our Lord Jesus Christ was available and ready to help his people all the time. Wasn't he? Not even the rough wake-up call by panicked disciples on a storm-tossed boat threw Jesus off his game. Awakened out of a dead sleep, his head was clear. Instantly it was. Clear to take decisive action. Immediately. But now let's fast forward to the cross. Even there, you may remember from Mark's gospel, some of them offered him wine mixed with myrrh, which was a sedative sometimes used at crucifixions to take the edge off the pain of the crucified. But Jesus didn't take it. He turned it down. Because even as he underwent the unspeakable pains of the cross, he resolved to keep his mind clear. It's got to be clear so as to call to mind the promises of his father made to him and concerning him as he faced this culminating moment of his earthly ministry. His mind has to be clear so as to comfort his disciples, even from the cross. Clear to comfort, even from the cross, his own mother. Clear to forgive from the heart those sinners who were at that moment raging against him. His mind had to be clear. And this really is the best argument for the elders being not addicted to wine. It's the same for his being above reproach and the husband of one bride, temperate, prudent, and all the rest. It is so that with clear mind, with a firm grasp of reality, we might emulate the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might imitate him. That in some small way, small perhaps to us, but very precious in his sight, we might become more completely like him. Those are the men we want to shepherd us through this life and on into that which is to come. Amen.